0: Well, good morning. I'd like you to uh, stand with me as we read today's text. Uh, we're going to be reading from the English Standard Version. I'm going to read uh, from verse 12 through to 26. If you don't have a Bible, we've got uh, Bibles up the front here. Please come and help yourself or, or lean over to your neighbor and uh, borrow theirs. Okay, so Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will be not put I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always Christ will be honored in my body without whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. because of my coming to you again oh sorry oh you may be seated how are you going with your Philippines challenge I thought I'd ask I thought I'd ask okay I hope you're enjoying reading through the book I hope you're getting a feel for the flow of the book, the, the heart in which Paul, this aged apostle, writes to this church. I hope some of you are writing it out. I find that personally a great blessing, but I won't impose that upon anybody, but it's a great discipline. So if you haven't got your bookmark, go and grab some. There's some up the front. If you're not in a small group and you want to study a little bit deep, more deeply uh, through the book, we've got uh, several of these study guides left. We're running a small group here on a Wednesday at the church if you're not from, uh, involved with the current small group, please come along at 7:30 on Wednesdays and in, you know, enjoy the times we're having together going through this book. So I'll leave that up with you. When we uh, first arrived in, in this lucky country, Australia. It was way back in uh, 2002. And it became very evident to us as we, we started moving amongst our lovely Australian friends and colleagues and cohorts that even though we are neighbours, for those of you who don't know, I'm a New Zealander, but we're, we're a neighbour to Australia. Even though we're neighbours, even though we, we fought in the trenches in and, and World War I and World War Two and in many other different wars throughout the Pacific even though we spoke the same language there were things that were different and these things that were different were, were primary in the area of Australian slang who knows what Australian slang is I'm sure you all know what slang is, don't you? It's the it's the corocalisms that you've put around your culture that really only it's like almost like an inside joke, right? You say something, and as an insider, as an Australian, you'll know what what you're talking about. You know terms like Buckley's chance, term like Dinkum, a term like Firthy. What's a Firthy? or even a term like a digger. These things were... Well, I, I didn't have a Buckley's chance of understanding what these things were. And it, it took a while to understand the culture through these different forms of, of slang. However, one, one term I did understand, and one term that I understood theoretically when we came to Australia, and this is the term... No worries. No worries. You know, do such and such and such. Yeah, no problems. No worries. It was just a consistent thing we used to hear as we, we communicated with people upon arriving in this country. As I said, I understood this thing theoretically, but I did not appreciate the cultural impact of such a term. You see, I think this term for Australians is more about a philosophy of life than just a piece of phraseology. It represents a culture of a, a really a can-do attitude of many Aussies. That no worries thing sort of shows the triumph of a very resilient people in the face of extreme adversity we sort of saw an element of that when we first arrived as we arrived in 2002 and this country was going through a severe drought and as you talk to, to farmers in the land and as you talk to rural folks you could see their resilience you could see the resilience uh, no worries as as they had gone and experienced bushfires that wiped out communities and Killed people. So this slogan, this phrase, really, for me, underpins the character of this country, and the character of its people. And what we will discover this morning, as we've read through these verses, now, if Paul was not an Australian. That's one thing we will discover. But he had the same theology of life. No matter what his circumstances were, you you see to have this, this overarching view that no worries. No matter what my circumstances are, no matter what Paul's circumstances were, he made no excuse into pursuing his goal. He made no excuse in pursuing his calling. He had made no excuse about around his circumstances to advance the gospel. To defend the gospel. To confirm the gospel. We read that in this passage. He advanced, he defended, he confirmed the gospel. Even though his circumstances were incredibly Incredibly difficult. His no worry attitude underpinned by his view of life and death, about being with Christ or remaining with the world. His no worries attitude. View Christ and his promises, and that Christ would. Bring, it, bring him to his eternal home. This completely shaped and motivated and fueled his life and his discipleship. You see, at this juncture in the letter we, we read last week, we, we, we see uh, a beautiful introduction and you see Paul's heart pour out in affection and he says to these folks, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, what is pure and what is blameless waiting for the coming day of Christ see his hope was fixed his circumstances and the way he related in his circumstances was based on the way his hope was fixed on Christ and his promises And Paul then moves in, as we have read in in this juncture in the letter, he moves into what I would call the body of the letter. He's poured out his heart and he's given them some thanksgiving and he's given them his heart for them. And then he starts giving a detailed account of his circumstances. And why does he do this? I think it's answered later in the letter Uh, in chapter 4 in chapter 4 verse 10 um, it says this I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity he's answering he's obviously received from Epaphroditus we'll read about him a little bit later on Epaphroditus has come to see Paul in his circumstance and Paul wants to reassure these believers that whatever they may have heard about his situation, about his imprisonment, that this whole imprisonment, this whole being bound by chains, is there for a purpose. Has brought his imprisonment, actually, has brought about great joy and great blessing. His incarceration has brought about fruit. And Paul wants to let the Philippians know this. He's more or less saying, don't worry, my circumstances are okay. Because the gospel has been advanced. So let's reread the first sentence as we start to understand a little bit more about Paul's circumstances. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. One thing when I read that that really strikes me is, is his circumstances, he's, he's in prison. A better translation probably would say he is bound by chains. So that tells us what type of imprisonment is in. As we will discover later as we read through, he has is, he is actually physically got a, a fetter around his ankle and that chain binds him to a guard. He's on house arrest. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Under house arrest in Rome. Did you know that through Paul's ministry, 25% of his ministry life was spent in prison? He knew what persecution was. He knew what difficulty was. He knew what tough circumstances were. And yet he has the insight to say, where God has placed me is there for his purpose and I'm going to advance or progress the gospel. This beautiful word picture has uh, a view of pioneers cutting their way through bush and things like that before an army, so an army could follow behind and have an easy passage. This is the movement that Paul sees while he's incarcerated, while he is in prison. You see, I mentioned Paul would spend a large portion of his time in prison, and we can start reading that from Acts 21. Read the last few chapters of Acts, and you see this. When he was arrested in Jerusalem in 21, he was shut away in prison in Caesarea, Acts 23 and 24. And you know, as a Philippian believer, you would think, oh no, our founding apostle, he's in prison. What's going to happen to the message? What's going to happen to his testimony? What's going to happen to the advancement of the gospel? Would this be the end of the ministry? Would this even be the end of the gospel spread throughout the nations? Because, you know, Paul's imprisonment dragged over month after month after month. Read that in Acts 24. But in God's providence, his imprisonment both under Herod and the Praetorian there in Acts 23, and the length of the imprisonments that he served really thrust the gospel into the highest levels of Roman politics. There was a purpose in Paul's incarceration for the advancement of the gospel. For instance, you know, two Roman uh, governors, Felix and, and Festus, along with King Herod Agrippa, you read this in Acts, and their wives heard Paul speak about faith in Christ. And one of these governors, over a span of two years, continued to ask Paul, come and see us, Paul. We want to hear more about your faith. And now we have news of this celebrated prisoner really um, reaching Rome and this is where he is and he's under house arrest and he's he's sitting inside this home with a guard a praetorian guard it's a, it's a special type of elite bodyguard service it was established by Octavian in in 27 B.C. Uh, They were eventually disbanded by about 300 A.D. And during this time that Paul was on earth, there were about nine different cohorts of this special bodyguard, the special praetorian. Uh, About 500 men in total. There were six cohorts in Roman colonies. There would have been a cohort of praetorian actually in Philippi being a Roman colony. But Paul was under house arrest, being guarded by these uh, men of the emperor in Rome. This is where he's at. This is where his imprisonment's at. This is where he's chained. We read in most of our English translations the word for chained is translated imprisonment. Probably better to be translated as chained or bond in bond for Christ. The end of verse 13. And you see the wonderful result of the circumstance in which Paul found himself. The result is in verse 13 and 14. There's two key things that occur in Paul's life because of his incarceration. Firstly, the evangelism of pagans. Notice here that throughout the whole imperial guard, throughout the whole Praetorian that was guarding him, the gospel was made known. Yeah, sure, he may have had a captive audience, but he still didn't have a captive tongue. He proclaimed to them the wonders of Christ, the power of the gospel. Not only to them, but look at verse 13, and to all the rest. I'm not sure who else was with Paul, but he made the certain fact that his circumstance would not dictate the point that he wasn't going to proclaim Christ in other words he wasn't going to go down to the garden and feel sorry for himself and eat worms he was focused on the fact that it's not my circumstance that's the issue it's my service to Christ And that's what he wrestles with. And and we see this in his willingness to evangelize the Praetorian and all the rest. And the second thing that occurs, which astounds me here, is not only was he involved in evangelism, but he was involved in edification. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's example, whoever came to see him or the church in Rome perhaps at that time and even as far flung as the churches which he had founded, were becoming increasingly more bold because of Paul's imprisonment and advancement of the gospel. So most of the brothers became Emboldened. They they wanted to speak out the word of God. They wanted to, to say, even though Paul is there incarcerated, this is not going to stop us from proclaiming who Christ is. He was an example. And his example turned into edification for believers. Because their speaking of the word of God was done in what way? Without fear. They weren't just speaking the word of God, they were doing it boldly because of the result of Paul's circumstance. So you know, how, how, how does this relate to us? You've seen the point here that no matter what Paul's circumstance was, he wanted to advance the name of Christ. He wanted to encourage and edify others even though he was incarcerated. So how does that relate to you and I today? We all are in different circumstances in life. We all have different issues. We all have different pressures. The first thing you've got to understand is God is with you in those, right? God is in amidst your circumstances. You may feel he's distant. You may feel that he does not understand. I can affirm to you today that he does. Because he does because Christ has walked that How do you use your circumstances to advance the gospel? Or is it just a unique gift for Paul the apostle at this time? Now, after all, who can rise to this challenge? Who can who can be like Paul in this? Well, I want to affirm to you you can. Why? Because the same spirit that resided in Paul, the Holy Spirit resides in you. The same power required to advance the gospel is God's spirit that works within your heart and in your soul and gives you the ability to speak for Christ. It gives you the ability to edify others in the process. There's one thing that really struck me as I was preparing for this is Paul a little bit later in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you'd like to turn there with me. Second Timothy chapter two. This is a couple of years later. So Paul is under house arrest, and then eventually he gets placed in a dungeon deep in the ground in Rome. And he writes a letter to Timothy. And he writes these words, and as I've read these, I haven't seen these before and they fooled me in relation to Paul's circumstance and his heart to advance the gospel. Verse 8 of chapter 2. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. You get that? The word of God is beyond your circumstances the word of God is not bound and the word of God will use you if you're a follower of Christ to advance the gospel no matter what your circumstances. Isn't that encouraging? And the basis of that is Christ. Remember Christ. Remember he is risen from the dead. What a glorious truth. So when Christ is risen from the dead, we know if we've put our faith and trust in that, that we too will rise again. Our sins are forgiven. We are in a position of citizenship, which is so incredible. Don't let your circumstances dictate your behavior. Look to Christ. Remember Christ. Remember, he is risen from the dead. Remember, he is the promised Messiah, the only Messiah, the offspring of David. And remember, his word is not bound. That's Paul's heart here. Even though I might be fettered to a a fellow Praetorian guardian, to a guardian, the word is not bound. God can use my circumstance to, to open up people's hearts. That's exciting. God can use your circumstance to open up people's hearts. Let's move on. Verse 15 through 18. So, even in Paul's circumstances, he has some envy and rivalry occurring and he goes on to explain this here to the philippians he says some indeed preach christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill the latter do it out of love knowing that i am put here or appointed for the defense of the gospel the former proclaim christ out of rivalry not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment what then Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I don't know about you, if I I hear someone preaching with the wrong motive, it really upsets me, right? It really irks me. I need to learn from Paul here. Because the word of God is not bound, because he has stated that, he can have confidence to say, I don't care if their motives are poor or if their motives are pure. The important thing is that Christ is proclaimed. You see, Paul doesn't have a crack at the those who are envious and full of rivalry. He doesn't have a go at their message. Obviously, their message was okay. The content was okay. What he has a go at is the motive of their heart. Because he comes to it and says, their motive is to afflict me even more and more with their preaching. So he says, I know their motive is wrong. It's just a pretext. But actually, their message is true. You know, Paul... really affirms all his brothers here. Whether they are full of envy or rivalry, he affirms them because they're preaching Christ, they're proclaiming Christ. He uses three verbs here. Verse 14, they're all infinitives. Speak the word, 15, preach Christ, 18, proclaim Christ. The object of the message is Christ. And this is the message that we read in Second Timothy. It includes the death, the burial, and resurrection. And that's the pure gospel. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Because there are so many false gospels out today. I'm going to go out on a track here, even though the text is not dealing with the false gospel, it's dealing with the motive of the way the gospel is proclaimed. But there are false gospels. Be wary of these things. When anybody ever tries to tag something into the gospel and get you to do something to to, to earn your salvation, it is from the pit of hell. And it will drive you quicker than you believe in that direction. The gospel is not about prosperity, the gospel is about faith in Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection because you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. The gospel deals with the and addresses the issue of our sin. We need a saviour. We need a perfect saviour who has died, buried and rose again and conquered sin. Don't be sucked in by other gospels, folks. Look at the gospel as proclaimed in the word of God. Sorry, a bit of a slide. You see here, just the heart of Paul and his circumstance. I want to advance the gospel. I want to defend the gospel. I want to make sure Christ is proclaimed. And I don't, he really says, I don't care how that happens as long as Christ is proclaimed. God will deal with the motive of people's hearts. is Christ proclaimed. As followers of Christ, and most of us here are followers of Christ, in your homes, amongst your kids, this precious little one God's given us, is Christ proclaimed. In your marriage, as husband and wife, is your modus operandi to have Christ proclaimed. If you're single at school, is Christ proclaimed? Because Paul is telling us this is the most important thing as followers of Him. The next section from 18b through to 26. Is really, it's just gripped my heart. This is Paul's theology of life. This is why in his circumstances he can have these thoughts. Because his theology has been underpinned so deeply by Christ. Let's quickly read, uh, we'll go verse 18. You'll read it again. Verse 18b, Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ this will turn out for my deliverance or salvation this will turn out for my salvation as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death we'll stop there and read those two verses and just unpack this a little bit Paul starts to unpack his heart his theology about life and death he's rejoicing because Christ is being proclaimed, he's seeking that the Philippians continue to do two things for him, continue to pray for him and to continue to ask help of the spirit of Jesus to bring him to salvation our English translations are a little bit poor here with the way we've translated verse 19. Verse 19 says, For I know that throughout your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Pretty much every modern translation, including the King James Version, which is not that modern, uses the word deliverance. The actual word in the original is salvation. And it's a better word. And actually, this particular Quote, this will turn out for my deliverance, is an Old Testament quote from Job chapter 13. Now, one of the unusual things about the book of Philippians, as opposed to other letters that Paul wrote, is there's very few Old Testament quotes he uses to support arguments or support theology. Why is that? They were a Roman colony, they had no synagogue, they weren't brought up in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Where you go to Ephesians, Galatians, just loaded with Old Testament quotes, as um, Paul uses the Old Testament to support his theology of Christ. But in Philippians, he he very sparingly uses Old Testament quotes, and this is the first one he uses here. Go back to Job chapter thirteen. So what is this about? This will turn out for my deliverance. Well, I won't read it, but if if you I want to read a little bit later. Look at Job chapter 13, verses 12 through 18. And you'll find the direct quote there. You see, it's part of one of Job's speech where he really gets stuck into the comforters that have been trying to comfort him. You know, his comforters aren't that comforting because they're insisting that, hey, Job, you're in this state. You're in the state of misery. You're in a state of of uh, having everything stripped away from you because of your own sin. That's really where it's coming from with Job. But Job knows better. And if you read in Job chapter 13, you will see that he pleads his case. He pleads his case with God. And why does he plead his place with God? Because he knows that God is the only one that can provide salvation for his situation. So that's why Paul uses that here. He's in a Job-like situation. His circumstances are poor. And yet he cries out. You Philippians, continue to pray for me. Continue to get the Spirit of God to move within my heart so that I can be Wound in this hope, this eager expectation that my salvation will come, no matter whether it's in death or within life. Read that, folks. That's important. His salvation, his hope, his expectation of salvation here transcends his circumstance. His hope for salvation is working out either here on earth where I remain or if I'm transferred to glory with Christ. And he states, it's my eager expectation that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, or probably another better way of determining that is with a full voice, that I will speak openly, continue to speak openly about the advancement of the gospel so that Christ is honored no matter what, whether I live or whether I die. It's also interesting to note here, and I think this is an important lesson for us. He asks for the Philippians to pray for him, and he asks that they continue to pray that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will provide support for him. You know, folks, our personal growth, our discipleship, it's not something in isolation. Our personal growth and our sanctification is designed to be done in the body. Christ calls us into a family in which he's the head. Our spiritual relationship with God is not something that's individualistic. It's dependent on the power of the Spirit of God that works within us and it's upon the intercessory prayers of God's people. The church is Christ's place of encouragement. Who was not encouraged last week as we heard the testimony of two young folks and how the Lord was working in their hearts? That should not be a one-off experience. That's why... And his unashamed plug for small groups is so important. Growth occurs when we meet together, growth occurs when we pray together. Growth occurs when we encourage and walk life together through tough circumstances for the glory of Christ. Him we proclaim. It's only within the church and within meeting together. Why does Paul say, not Paul, another writer, actually the writer to Hebrews say a little bit later, don't forsake meeting of yourselves together. Because the church is God's bodybuilding program. Chuck Swindoll says that regularly. This is his his bodybuilding program. It's the place where we get muscles. Maybe not the place we trim down, but we get spiritual muscles. Because all that fellowship tends to put the kilos on, you understand? But, you know, this body, this eclectic bunch of people, Australians, New Zealanders, quasi Indians, whatever, whatever, Vanuatuese. I don't know what you call Vanuatuese. But the reality is, God places us together to grow us together, to be like Christ. So that transcends our circumstances. And then we have the famous verses here. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means faithful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed because the two desires is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I just want to draw four infinitives there. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To depart is a glorious thing to be with Christ. To remain is necessary to encourage you Philippians. He's pulled in two directions. And You can see his deep openness of heart to say, "I just don't know where I need to be." But he says, "In the end of the day, I don't care where it is, whether I live or die, if I depart or remain, it doesn't matter because whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to do all for the glory of Christ." I trust that's your heart and motivation. This is deep theology that, that's shaping Paul to say, "No matter what the circumstance, no worries." I'm going to follow Christ. And then he finally, he, he gives a word of assurance. The reason that I actually realize I'm going to remain here is I'm convinced of this, that I will remain and I will, I will continue to be with you for two things, your progress of faith and for the joy of your faith. And this progress and joy in the thing that you will see Christ glorified. see no matter what Paul's circumstances the gospel advanced we see that Paul's circumstances were shaped by his hope and expectation that Christ no matter what even his death or life would sustain him his eager expectation we see that Paul's theology of life is rooted and grounded in the gospel of grace He is a defender, a confirmer, and a proclaimer of this gospel. Within his circumstances of his life, he had no worries. He understood who he served, why he served, and he understood the promises given to him for faithful service. Do you understand those things yourself today, folks? Do you understand who you serve? Why you serve? And is it underpinned by the promises that the one you serve is faithful to the end? That was Paul's prayer to the Philippians. It's my prayer for you today. Thanks, team.